Good morning. Nice to see you all. As Mark uh, said, we're in the process of purchasing a building, a place that we call home. And uh, we don't need tens of thousands of people to do that. It is a, an expensive venture. That's just part of life. That's part of living in Southern California. Real estate's expensive. And uh, uh, we have a church that is, uh, I believe, 137 members. We have, uh, we'll, we'll add to that here in, in the coming weeks, maybe 10 or so, 12 people. Um, but it's always the faithful few of which God does His work through. So we are to give our time, we are to give our talent, and the, la- the, the hardest thing for uh, the maturity of Christians is letting go of their money. Okay? We're not going to strong arm you into giving, but as one grows in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that seems to be the last place that people have the most difficulty with. And, you know, the gospel's free indeed, but, you know, we've got to pay for stuff. So we're going to ask that you know we can do this together. If you're a member here, that's just part of the responsibility. So uh, I encourage you to do that. You know, a lot of ministries today they place their confidence in numbers. Many ministries estimate their success by how many come through the door, how many seats are filled. And I've always said from day one, we're going to focus on the seats that are filled rather than the seats that are empty. We're not going to do. Um, manipulative type of tactics to get people in through the doors and then entertain them. We're going to teach them the Word of God. But when one's ministerial focus is numbers, you in turn will have to focus on the breadth of your ministry rather rather than on the depth. We believe that if we focus on the depth, God will take care of the breadth is we focus on building you in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and you grow to a deeper-seated, a greater and deeper-rooted faith, from out of you will flow streams of living water. From out of you, from out of us, will flow ministry. Effective ministry. True preachers of the Gospel. True proclaimers of the Word who know what the Scripture means by what it says. Some churches... uh, pull away from the text and they come up with methods. They're afraid to teach verse by verse because eventually you're going to get into some some texts that are very offensive. And if you if you entrust yourself to how many people come, then when you offend them, you're going to be afraid of losing them because if you lose them, you lose their money. And if you lose your, their money, then you lose the stuff that you want to do. But we don't, we don't care about that. Jesus didn't care about that, as we're going to see today. This is an eye-opening passage of Scripture. If you're not familiar with the context of John chapter 6, you will become very familiar with it today. I heard a man literally teach this week on the radio. He was referencing John 6, and he says, think about the people that were fed, the thousands that were fed as Jesus multiplied the fish, as He multiplied the bread. They were seeking Jesus. They loved Jesus. They wanted Jesus. You'll find out today they wanted nothing to do with Him. He said there's other times that there were so many people who loved Jesus were pressing in upon Him that He had to get onto a boat and they had to push Him off the shore so that He could teach. Well, actually, what he taught there was the parable of the sower and how terrible the condition of the soil was. Now, although a lot of people will put a lot of trust in numbers as we look through Scripture, I've learned that God places His emphasis elsewhere. 
He's not nearly as impressed with numbers as we are. If you think of Judges 7 and Gideon, Gideon called the men of Israel to battle against the Midianites. 32,000 men answered the call. The Lord told Gideon that 32,000 were too many. So he whittled it down to 10,000. The Lord said it's still too many. So Gideon put, a, put these men to the test. And that was trimmed down to a mere 300. And this was great in the sight of the Lord. And he used these men in and by his power for his glory. And we see here that God is much more interested in quality than he is in quantity. And here in John 6, we see the same principle. Only this time, it's those who are actually following Jesus Christ. But as we will see, they followed him for reasons other than that which he demanded. They were demanding of him more signs, more miracles, more wonders. And people haven't changed a bit. They'll follow Jesus for a time, and the harder his teachings become, the more frustrated they become. And they will eventually, will eventually be revealed what they're truly made of. Faith or faithlessness. The context of this section of John's Gospel is the continuation of the Lord's great message on the very bread of life that has come down from heaven. He will conclude on a note that's very, very offensive to his hearers. We will discover this morning that which divides false disciples of Jesus Christ and the truly saved. And it's his words that divide. It's not his power, it's not his presence, it's, it's not what he provides tangibly, it's his words that divide. Mark read from it this morning, and there's so much to cover. I had him open with that reading so that I don't have to read it again. I'm just going to go verse by verse and get right into the teaching because uh, it's going to take some time. We're going to finish the chapter today. So let's pray that uh, God will grace us all to have our minds set and ready to receive uh, what He would have for us this morning. If you'll bow with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we are gathered deliberately this Lord's Day for the sake of setting in order praise that is worthy of your name and to hear your most holy word. Father, I pray that everyone here will be reminded that they're not here to hear from a man. They're here to hear from you. And I ask that you remove me out of the way and that you would speak boldly through me that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your name will be proclaimed, your truth will be declared with clarity. And I pray, Lord, that your church, your true church, will be built up in the faith, edified to a deeper, richer understanding of your word and what your word means by what it says. And for anyone here today, Lord, who who for some time perhaps has been proclaiming your name, they profess to be a Christian, when in reality they're not, I pray that you would convict them to the place and point of repentance, brokenness. Crush them today, God, and save their soul. We thank you for the power of the word. In Jesus' name, amen.
John chapter 6, verses 47 to 71, we see the watershed moment of belief and departure. The watershed moment of belief and departure. Three points of focus for us this morning that are outlined in your bulletin. Point number one, we see the offensive teachings of Jesus in verses 47 to 52. In point two, we see the amplified offensiveness of Jesus in verses 53 to 59. And then finally, the dividing line of true and false discipleship. True and false discipleship. Up to this point, Jesus has multiplied the, the bread and the fish. He fed uh, 5,000 men. That would have been 10, 15,000 people. He walked on the water. He met his disciples in the middle of the water out there and, and, and as they faced a great windstorm. He gets into the boat. Immediately, they were on the other side. The very people of which he multiplied the bread and fish for followed him to the other side. They were diligently seeking him out. They wanted him. They wanted to see more signs. And Jesus confronted them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you only seek me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You were seeking me because you, got, you were stuffed yesterday and you're back from war. That is it. And he goes on to give this great discourse regarding himself as being the bread that came down from heaven, took on human flesh, and unless they feed on him and him alone, they will die in their sin and they will go to hell. In verse 47, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Here lies the great divide of life, right here. Those who remain under the wrath of God and those of us who equally deserve such wrath but are under the saving blood of Jesus Christ. There's two camps. You're saved or you're not saved. You're born again, regenerate of the Holy Spirit or you're unregenerate, dead in your trespasses and sins. There's no in-between. Nobody has one foot in. Just checking Jesus out. There's nobody who's undecided. To be undecided is to be decided to be set against Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Period. This is it. Two positions. So here we have in verse 47 an indirect invitation to believe and an implied warning against unbelief. Jesus says, verse 48, I am the bread of life. In other words, I am the promised, soul-saving, life-sustaining bread that has come down from heaven. Now, for this group, or anyone for that matter, to come to Jesus Christ is not to come to Him as though you're doing Him some favor. This group came to Jesus, if you recall, back in verses 14 and 15, they wanted to make Him king because of the miraculous signs that He was performing. Jesus, perceiving that he, they wanted to make him king, he departed, went up on a mountain and prayed. All they desired was a welfare plan. Daily bread. That which was tangible. That which was outward. That which would sustain them physically. Make life easy for them here on earth. That's all they wanted. They wanted bread like God provided through Moses in the wilderness, the manna from heaven. They said, hey, you know, you know, Israel, our, our people, our fathers ate the manna and, and uh, come down from heaven. Can you perform a greater trick than that, Jesus? Verse 49, Jesus said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. They're dead. 
See, what Jesus is talking about is the superiority of the new covenant. He's not talking about manna. This is new covenant teaching. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and there's nobody around here to give testimony to it. There's no one around here talking about it. They're all dead. So Jesus is not discussing Moses leading Israel out of bondage from Egypt. Jesus is talking about new covenant truth, the Son of God coming down out of heaven to deliver His people from the bondage of sin. Big difference. Physical versus spiritual. All they wanted was temporary satisfaction. They wanted what this miracle worker could provide. That's it. That's all they wanted. Jesus said, the, you know, the bread you desire and want to compare me to, back in verse 31, they're dead. The reason they wanted that kind of bread is because they also were dead. Spiritually dead. Blind to the very one that was standing before them. The living word of God come down out of heaven, took on human flesh. He's the bread. Unless you feed on him, you likewise will die in your sin says Jesus, and if you don't feed on him today and you're not feeding on him, you don't know him. If you don't know him, you will likewise die in your sin as well. So are you running after the bread of temporary satisfaction today? Or are you feeding on the very life of the word, Jesus Christ? And belief is not mere intellectual assent. You can agree with the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ the glory of Christ, you can agree with that and embrace that intellectually and be still yet be dead in sins and trespasses and go to hell. So simply analyzing the work and the person of Jesus Christ, simply analyzing and standing in agreement to all that He has done means nothing. You must be a partaker of His divinity, of His divine nature. He's not something you add to your life. They wanted to add Jesus to their life. People today want to add Jesus to their life. They want to live like they want to live. They love the world. They love the world system. They want to have Jesus in their pocket. Jesus is their genie. Just pull him out when you want him, when you're you know, facing some trouble, and cast out your little wishes. But there's, no, there's only one resource in life, in the universe, that will satisfy the nagging hunger of the soul. And that's Jesus. That's it. You know, when you're hungry, do you analyze your meal? You know, when you set a meal before you, do you sit and look it all over, simply analyze it and walk away? Answer, no, we don't. You eat it. Same is true for the soul. You can go to a therapist. You can have them give you a self-analysis. You can read the report. Look at everything they checked off that is wrong with you and walk out without a remedy. They have no remedy to fix your soul. Zero. They'll tell you what's wrong with you. They can tell you to look within. Look within yourself. You'll look within yourself, and if you walk in miserable, you look in yourself long enough, you'll walk out more miserable. No one will give you more misery than yourself. Amen? You continue to look into yourself. You will be sick. The only, that's depressing. The only food that satisfies Jesus Christ. If a chef brings you out a seven-course meal, you don't sit there and observe it. You don't simply smell it, analyze it, philosophize over the meal and how it's arranged and the colors in the room and the ambiance of the room. Right? You can go look at it, you can smell it, you can cut it, you can touch it, you can do everything but taste it. Go meet the chef who prepared it and then walk away hungry. 
That's how people look at Christ. Watch CNN. Watch Headline News. Watch the History Channel. Watch National Geographic. They are to this day analyzing the work and the person of Jesus Christ as experts. And they're dead in their sin. You must feed on Him. Jesus is the only source, the only substance that gives life. So to simply analyze the person, the proclamation, and the power of Christ and never eat, you will die spiritually starved, but you'll have a wealth of information of which you will be accountable for. Very dangerous, dangerous place to be. Now other people, they'll go out, they'll feed themselves on the world, worldliness, the, the things that the world has to offer, they'll get stuffed full with that. They're full. And then when Jesus is taught, the truth is taught, it nauseates them. It makes them sick. It's like going out, like Thanksgiving, you go get full on Thanksgiving dinner, okay? And then drive somewhere, drive by McDonald's and go, oh, let's stop in for a Big Mac. What's it make you feel like? Nauseated. If you're filled with the Word and Christ nauseates you, if the truth of Christ nauseates you, the proclamation of Christ and His authoritative claims nauseate you, you are likely filled with worldliness and you don't know Him. Very dangerous. So do the authoritative, authoritative teachings of Jesus Christ and the great cost of following Him nauseate you today? must ask ourselves that question. Jesus said, verse 50, This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the only life-giving bread that satisfies. Manna does not provide internal or eternal satisfaction. Only the bread of life does. So, this group has been analyzing Jesus, looking at his works, looking at his power. If you remember, his fame went out throughout the land because he was healing everyone in Galilee. Follow him. It's easy, amen? It's very easy to follow a Christ like that, no doubt. And that's exactly what they were doing. But they wanted more signs. They didn't want him. They wanted him to do more signs. Verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the, of the world. So he repeats his identification as the bread of life, reiterating that the source is heavenly. Now this is a universal offer right here. Universal author that faith guarantees eternal life. True faith guarantees eternal life. Now remember verse 39. All that the Father gives, I will raise it up on the last day. He says he will raise it, meaning the sum total of the all. The all what? The all redeemed of all time. All that have been redeemed from the beginning of time until the end of time, he will raise it, a unit of one, up. Which shows us what? That God's elect are a specified number. His elect are a specified number. It's not some ongoing number without end. There's a specific number of God's chosen people, His elect, that He's going to save. And when He saves them, when they are all come to the saving faith in Jesus Christ, we're all going to be raised up as a unit. Physical resurrection. 
So here in verse 51, we have a simple, clear-cut declaration. Look at it again. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. These are simple, declarative sentences. This is the true gospel. This gospel is hard to take. This gospel is hard to accept. This gospel is an offense. This is not a gospel of generalities. This is a one-way or the highway gospel. This is a Jesus-way or no-way gospel. So, the true gospel of Jesus Christ does not lend itself to easy believism. Just say this prayer. Just think this and you're in. No, that's, that's easy believism. That's death. This is the gospel of the cross. This is the gospel of Him who said, I am the bread, you must feed on me. And in verse 51, we see a connection between the atonement and the resurrection. Look at that, the atonement. He's the bread that... He, I am the bread that I shall give as... The bread that I shall give is my flesh. There's the atonement. There's Christ. He's going to go to the cross. And the resurrection. If anyone eats this bread, he will live how long? Forever. Atonement. Resurrection. So here we see the necessity of the atonement. That his very own flesh is given for the believer. So Jesus is saying here, if you do not come to me, if you do not feed on me, and do not believe in me alone, you will not come by faith. And there's no life in you at all. You're nothing but the breathing dead. That's offensive. Right? This is the epitome of political incorrectness. You don't preach this gospel on the TV. Now, it's not only straight-out, blatant unbelievers that are offended by this. A large segment of people identify themselves to be Christian. But this gospel is offensive, and many are troubled by such statements as these. Same is true to today. Same is true. For the garden variety, verbally professing Christian, this is very, very difficult teaching to swallow. They say this, You mean to tell me that unless every human being throughout the entire world, if they do not feed on Jesus Christ alone that they have no life, if they do not believe solely upon Jesus Christ, even though they genuinely believe in another way, though it's not right, they're not going to live forever. They don't have eternal life. And on top of it, verse 44 says, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him by his irresistible superiority. You mean to tell me all of that is the only way, the only source? That is very, very, very offensive. But that's the true gospel. That's the true gospel. This is the offense of all offenses. So Jesus is making these monumental claims. He, did this, he made monumental claims back in chapter thir, uh, 3, beginning in verse 14. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God, verse 17, did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Everyone is condemned already because of their unbelief. One can only believe if God graces them to believe. Faith is a gift. We went over this last week. It's very important that you learn, you go listen to last week's message to tie this together. Now, notice at the end of verse 51, Jesus said that he will give his flesh for the life of the of the world. Now, the world in this sense does not mean that he came to give his life for the world without exception. It does not mean that. Because if Jesus came to give his life without exception, everyone in the world would be saved, but not everyone in the world is going to be saved. What this means is that Jesus came for the life of the world without distinction. In other words, as the promised Messiah of Israel, He did not solely come for believing Jews alone. I mean, Paul said, not all that are Israel are of Israel. In other words, the Messiah did not come simply and only specifically for those who would believe that are Jews. He also came for those who would believe that are Gentiles from throughout every tongue, tribe, and nation of the world. came to give his flesh for all who will ever believe. Now, unless one has spiritual perception, spiritual truth is going to make no sense at all. Amen? This takes the divine initiative of God to be able to grasp and understand the truths of Christ. See, they took the figure of eating his flesh as literal. The reason they couldn't understand is because they had no spiritual life in them. Verse 52, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now notice what Jesus does not do at this point. He does not back up and go, Wait a minute, now I know that was offensive, so please let me explain. Hold on now, please don't go away. No, he does not do that. He didn't say, Wait a minute, fellas, hold on. No. See, the fact that Jesus said, the bread that I shall give is my flesh, this is hard enough to grasp. But regardless of the complexity here, Jesus does not lighten up. His teaching becomes even more abrasive. He's only begun here. He does not attempt to tone down his statements. He actually goes on to reinforce them. To push them forward. So what seemed impossible to grasp by this group of people, now seems absolutely ridiculous. And that leads us to point number two, the amplified offensiveness of Jesus. Verses 53 to 59. Now instead of speaking merely about the necessity of eating his flesh, Jesus now speaks about the necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. (laughs) Can you imagine... Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. Imagine that. Now, the promises of verses 53 all the way through 58 are, are repetitious in form, so we're not going to spend a detailed amount of time on them. These are, he's simply repeating the facts of his coming. 
Verse 53, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. So He's not attempting to clear up their warped thinking here. Jesus never gratifies stubborn unbelief. Jesus never panders to the stubborn hard-hearted. Ever. He never does in His earthly ministry. But His true disciples, when they didn't understand something, He took the time to pull them aside into what? To explain. To expound. To give them greater understanding. To explain the parables. He didn't explain the parables to the hard-hearted. Parable means riddle. And he gave the riddles because they were already hardened. And the riddle, the parable, would make them even harder. And there we have the judicial hand of God upon them. Which is actually merciful, if you think about it. They couldn't understand anymore. And you're going to be accountable for what you do know. So if God graces you not to understand anymore, because you're already stubborn in unbelief, he's actually, actually gracing you so that your condemnation won't be greater in hell. That's grace too. Come on, somebody. But this would have been repulsive to the Jews. This is absolutely contrary to the law of God. This is absolutely 180 out from the Levitical law. So you know what was in their mind was Leviticus chapter 17 verse 10 that says, And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. This is what they miss. This is what they're missing. Even the Old Testament, you see the foreshadowing truth of that which was to come. And the fulfillment was standing before their very eyes. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Now, if these words were to be interpreted literally, the only logical conclusion would be that Jesus is advocating cannibalism here. These difficult sayings are known as a mashal. A mashal, a veiled saying. And it requires spirit and a spiritual interpretation. Remember, 1 Corinthians, the natural man cannot understand the things of God for they are foolishness to him when the gospel is foolishness to someone when the teachings of Christ are foolishness to someone they can't believe because they're still natural the reason one can believe is because they've been supernaturally given life from above they've been born again and you don't cause yourself to be born again that's an act of God if you sit here understanding and grasping the truths of Christ and the gospel and you've responded to the gospel it's because God's graced you to respond to the gospel if you've yet to respond, we pray that God will open your eyes and that you'll repent today of your hardened unbelief. Come to faith. And the only one that can save you. What Jesus is saying here is, look, you must take me. You must ingest my sacrifice. You must see and understand that I must shed my blood and that I must die. And you must accept me completely. My death and my shed blood because there's nothing you can do to earn your way. You don't add anything to your salvation, is what he's saying to these people. Remember what they said earlier? What works can we do? What works of God can we do? The work of God is to believe on Him in whom He sent. That's the work of God. To entrust oneself fully and completely to the one who came out of heaven as the bread of life. 
But the problem is that they were hardened to the point of unbelief. This is the judicial hardening of God. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. But although He, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. In other words, here it is, they would not believe. Verse 38. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which He spoke. Lord, who's believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he, has, he, God, has blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. They would not, therefore they could not. This is their unbelief which had taken them past the point of being able to believe. The judicial hand of God. You know what? God, as Romans 1 says, He turns people over to their own mind. When He turns them over to their mind, He'll turn them over a second time to the behavior of their mind, the lifestyle of their mind, and eventually He'll turn them over a third time to a depraved mind, to where they can't believe. Oh, that's a dangerous place to be. Don't go there. Repent if you're not a believer today. Paul cried out. Paul begged people to repent. I beg you to repent if you're not a believer. If you're a believer, make sure you preach this gospel. Verses 44 and 55. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Now many people think this has to do with communion. That it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. But if Jesus, for Jesus to mention it here, it would have been absolutely incomprehensible to these Jews. This has nothing to do with communion. Now, this is what would point forward to communion. And communion points to a believer's union with Christ, a oneness with Christ, you see. When we take communion, we represent and we proclaim His death and that through His death and resurrection, we have life with Him. We are one in Him. Catholics teach that that wine and that bread literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. That's insanity. taught that, it's just not biblical. You notice he says that my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Food and drink indeed means that this is true, that this is real. True and real spiritual, life-giving provision. He's providing his broken body. He's providing his shed blood. Which would point forward to the institution of the Lord's Supper of which we partake in today. But the context doesn't have anything to do with communion. This is His body, His blood, shed, and you must feed on Him. Verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So partaking of Christ constitutes an abiding, an ongoing relationship with Him. Jesus teaches this elsewhere in John 14, 19. A little while longer, He says to His disciples, and the world will see Me no more. But you will see Me because I live. And because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in Me, and I in you. 
In John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much, what? Fruit. For without me you can do what? Nothing. You can't save yourself. You can't add to your salvation. You don't bring part of your salvation. Without me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. As a true believer, we live the life of Jesus. We live in him. We live and we move and we have our being in Christ. Because he's in us. This is Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives where? In me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus continues in verse 57, As the living Father sent me, now now check this out, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, Jesus has life in himself. We learned this earlier, right? But we, we must remember that it was the Father who ordained Jesus the Son to lower himself out of glory, out of heaven, to come to earth and to take on physicality here, to take on humanity, to become a human being. Right here on earth. And Jesus gives believers spiritual life that will enable us to go there, heaven. So the Son has taken on physical life here to come to earth so that we can take on spiritual life and go there to heaven to be with Him. Because He's provided such a life for us. So Jesus became what we are, human. This is God. He lowered Himself to become a human being in order that we might become what He is. And what is He? He's one with the Father. One with the Father. Because we're in Christ. So if a sinner feeds on the bread of life, Jesus Christ, He's restored back to the Father. Because we're sinners, we're separated from the Father. To be restored back to the Father, you must have the life of Christ. That's what's called positional righteousness. If you're in Christ, God looks at you as perfectly righteous in position because you're covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ. You're shrouded in the white robes of Christ. The righteous robes of Christ, covered by His blood. Therefore, you have union with the Father through the Son. This is indivisible oneness. For those who are in Christ. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live for how long? Forever. Now as great as the manna was in the wilderness that God provided through Moses for the, for, for the Israelites. That was great in upholding them physically. I mean for 40 years. But everyone who partook of it died. They're dead. And anyone else who feeds on or feeds off of what the world has to offer, you will likewise die. Not only physically, but you remain spiritually dead forever and ever and ever. Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, John adds that this entire discourse, going back to verse 25, so from verse 25 to the end of this chapter... This took place in the synagogue. These hardcore teachings took place in the synagogue. Now, Capernaum. 
Now this is a city that as you read scripture, you do not read anywhere where they tried to chase Jesus out, tried to beat him, tried to throw him off of a cliff. That happened in Nazareth. But there was no heavy offensive movement against Christ. But this is a town that remained very indifferent towards Christ. And look what Jesus said about Capernaum in Matthew 11. Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not, what? Repent. And then he goes on to speak in verse 23 about Capernaum. He says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Sodom, given over to homosexuality, absolute perversity, not only did they pervert God's original intent between a physical man and woman, they also inverted it. That's how far man will go. They will pervert what God originally intends and then they'll invert it, which means to go 180 degrees out from what He intended it to be. They were a town fully given to that type of lifestyle. So God sends fire from heaven. They don't even know where that place existed. Exactly. That wrath of God came down. And He's saying, look... If I would have walked in, if the word of life, if the bread of life would have walked into Sodom, they would have repented. I'm right here and you remain indifferent. Therefore, your suffering will be greater in the last day. And they'll bear witness of it on that day. Why? Because the very bread of life stood before you and you just, oh yeah, Jesus is alright with me, Jesus is just alright. They had the doobie brother mentality, amen? And this is a warning to those who hear the truth. They know the truth. They can reiterate the truth. They believe in the works and the power and the person of Jesus Christ and they don't come to Him and feed on Him for everlasting life. Greater will your condemnation be. The more you know, the more you're accountable for. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, greater will your condemnation be. Because they had the oracles of God. They had the words of God. They were teachers of the law. But they didn't know the, know the lawmaker. Big warning, flashing. Boop, boop, boop. Repent, repent, repent if you profess and don't believe. So after this profound declaration, these meager outward followers of Jesus said in verse 60, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Meaning, this is offensive. This is unpleasant. And no, we won't have it. Now, that leads us to point number three. This is the dividing line. The dividing line of true and false discipleship. Verses 60 to 71. Now, the, the, the people who heard this message, John 6, going back to verse 25, the people who heard this message are divided into three groups. Now, if you remember, the Jews in verses 41 and 52, the Jews represent the religious leaders of the day and their followers. Group number two are known as the disciples. Okay? Not to be confused with the twelve disciples because they're the third group. So you have the Jews, the religious leaders, the disciples, the mass followers of Christ, and then you have the twelve. Now, there's two types of faith in the world. There's those who say they have faith and they're spiritually dead. And then there's those who say they have faith, and they prove that they have faith. Their life manifests the reality that they have true faith. 
there's only one kind of true faith. Two types of professed faith, one kind of true faith. So then, if there's two types of faith, faiths, we know that there's two types of disciples. So this one group of disciples that we're about to meet are not to be confused with the twelve disciples. Now at this point, Jesus did not ease them into this hardcore teaching, but he came out with both guns blazing. So the response here is not the twelve, but it's rather those that have been following Jesus. They claim to belong to Jesus. They claim to be part of what he was doing. They, in, they had enjoyed what he had been doing all throughout Galilee up until this point. Up until this point. And then in verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Now, this, is, this group is more or less the regular followers of Christ. This would have been perhaps hundreds of people, even thousands. Now, these disciples, quote-unquote disciples, were probably disgusted at this point, and they begin to reveal their hearts of rebellion. Now, the word offend here, Jesus said, does this offend you? That's an interesting word. It's scandalizo. It's for, from we were get our, where we get our word scandalize. And it means to entrap. It means to trip up. To entice or to ensnare. It's like propping up a box with a crooked stick to lure an animal into it. And they knock the stick over going for the bait and it crashes in on them. They're trapped. So Jesus is saying, do my words trap you? Do my hardcore teachings destroy your attraction of me? You've been following me around all of Galilee. Are you offended? Do my words kill your desire of me? Is there an end now of your interest in me? Do I cause you to stumble? Jesus is referred to as a stumbling stone, isn't he? In the Old Testament, prophesy the stone of stumbling. Because people are going to trip over him and miss him because of stuff like this. See, countless numbers of people desire to follow Jesus Christ because of his works. I pray to Jesus and so long as he gives me what I want, I'll keep on following. I'll go to church. I'll sit in the front. Notice no one's sitting in the front. I'll sit in the front, I'll go to Wednesday night, I'll go all over the worship stuff. As a matter of fact, I'll hop all over town to different churches and I'll feel good about Jesus and I'll wear my Jesus ball cap and all of this type of stuff. But don't tell me about his difficult words. I dig his works, but I don't dig his words. Most of the world's amazed and enamored with Jesus 2,000 years later. That's why you have so many experts on the cable TV, CNN, History Channel, and all that. National Geographic. They're analyzing Jesus, as I said. They need to analyze themselves and see where they're really at. They're either feeding on the Word or they're not. They love His works, 
They hate his words because his words are authoritative. And you know what his words do? They offend. His words divide. His, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. I came to divide father from son, mother from daughter. Whew. That's heavy. And I say that because that's the entire context. This type of division is the context of this chapter. Notice he says, verse 62, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? He says, look, if you think this is heavy to handle, you don't have the slightest idea of what's ahead. You have no idea of me being delivered into the hands of man, arrested, brutalized, crucified, I'm going to be buried, and then I'm going to raise the third day, and then to top it off, I'm going to ascend back to heaven physically, literally. If you can't handle this, you won't even understand what's ahead, man. Nothing. Because you're blind and you're dead. So if they fell apart at this, how, how, would they, how would they handle the humiliation of Christ? The one that they were willing to follow? They were spiritually blind people, and spiritually blind people don't care, and they can't care, nor do they understand the words of Christ. Verse 63. You know why? Because it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. I'm not talking about eating flesh and blood here. I'm talking about feeding on me the very Word of God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, right? And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means to tabernacle. It means to pitch a tent. He pitched a tent of humanity here on earth. It's the Spirit in the person, the man or woman, that testifies of Jesus, who said, I am the bread that gives life. It's impossible, here it is, it is impossible to believe for anyone, it's impossible to believe without the divine work of the Holy Spirit revealing who Jesus is to the man or woman. You can't believe on your own. It's impossible. Because if you believe on your own and you bring faith to the table of salvation, as I said last week, then you have something to boast about. So, true and false discipleship are separated by this. The words of Christ. Not the works of Christ. Everyone agrees he was a great teacher. Right? Great teacher of moral ethics. Great example. Turn the other cheek. Rah, rah, rah. No, it's the words of Christ that divide. He said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Now, as we interpret Scripture with Scripture... As we've been studying through the Gospel of John, we see some amazing things revealed for us in this discourse. We see Christ, we hear Christ revealing himself as the Messiah. We see the principle of justification by faith alone. We see the promise and the assurance of the effectual calling. Remember, many are called, but few are chosen. That's because the general call that goes out to everyone doesn't affect everyone or cause everyone to come to true saving faith. That's why it's called the effectual call. It has an effect to transform their life. And then we see the assurance that those who come to, who come to Christ by faith will by no means be cast out. There's an assurance of everlasting life here. We see the demonstration of the substitutionary sacrifice in the atonement by Christ's own death on the cross, His flesh and His blood being given. 
then he speaks in a language regarding his broken body and shed blood which points forward to the communion table. And that gives us an understanding that it would soon be instituted. His body broken, his blood shed, yet even so with all this divine truth, look at verse 64, but... But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. See, they do not combine the message of Jesus with faith. Why? Because they had no faith. They were dead. Spiritually dead. Now, the book of Hebrews... Okay? The book of Hebrews, now it's important, if to understand the book of Hebrews, you have to understand who it was written to. The writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, was writing not to just one group of people, he was writing to a group of Jews, but they were in different camps. You had one group of Jews who agreed with the work of Christ, the person of Christ, the power of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. They believed that, they embraced that, and they were saved. There are others in that group that were simply intellectual, in intellectual agreement to those facts. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 2 says, For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Although they all heard it. There's three groups of people here that heard the same words of Christ, but it had different effects, didn't it? So the response of unbelief to Jesus here is no surprise at all. No surprise. And Jesus goes on to move towards the cross with clear perception. This does not throw him off. There's no plan B. He's moving ahead. He knows that there would be groups, and he knew from the beginning of time in his deity that most would not believe him. Believe in Him. And He knew from the beginning of His ministry in His humanity who wouldn't believe in Him. So in His deity, He knew from eternity past. In His humanity, He knew from the beginning of His ministry. Remember Judas? He said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you is the devil. These disciples are not disciples that believed and fell away. Okay? They didn't believe for a while. They weren't born again for a minute and then lost their salvation. You don't lose salvation. If people think they can lose their salvation, you, what you have to understand is you can't lose it. You just never had it. Right? Otherwise it wouldn't be called what kind of life? Everlasting life. So these are not disciples that fell away. These are false disciples revealed for their falseness. These are 1 John 2.19 people. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? They would have continued with us. If they were truly saved, they would, they would be going today. But they went out that they might be made manifest. In other words, it's proven that none of them were of us. Verse 65, and he said, Therefore, I have said to you, that no one can, now check it out, no one can come to me unless, can, all exclusive claim, no one, all exclusive claim, can come to me unless, unless it has been granted him by my Father. So again, Jesus stresses the predestinary and divine side of salvation. 
Now, Jesus had already explained to this group that it's only the Father that draws. And only, people can only come to Him if the Father draws Him. Now, I'm not breezing over this verse, guys. I spent an extensive amount of time on this last week. So please, don't think I'm brushing this over. I love this stuff. But you need to go back to the website and listen to our sermon from last week because I spent the entire time on verses 44 to 46. No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws Him. And the word draw means what? Drag. Nobody has the ability to come to the Son unless the Father does the divine work in that individual to bring Him to the Savior. Verse 37. Whoever the Father, what? Whoever the Father gives to me will what? Will come. All that the Father gives will come, but not all come, revealing that not all are given. So you have a universal positive of the gospel, verse 37, a universal negative of the gospel, verse 44. Jesus reiterates, reiterates the power of that truth in verse 65, and we need to remember those as bookends of the gospel. Whoever he gives will come, but no one can come unless the Father draws him. Go listen to it and we, we explain that. So unbelief is to be expected, apart from the divine miraculous, intervening work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus reiterates the truth of verse 44 again because most are going to reject His gospel. Some will reject it outright. outright. Some will reject it with undisguised hatred, blatantly hating Christ and the good news. Others will appear to share in the gospel as they sit next to you in church, for some time. Nobody here, I hope. They love to fake it until they're faced with the core teachings of Jesus Christ or unless they begin to receive scorn from an unbelieving world, then they depart. And then others are simply peeled away because of a love for the world, a love for fame, a love for money. And Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and despise the other, right? Hate the one and reject the other. Verse 66, from that time, many of his what? Disciples went back and walked with him no more. What did they go back to? They went back, guess to what? They went back to the things they, that they left in order to follow Christ. Apparently, follow Christ. So these disciples were no disciples at all. They withdrew, meaning they went back to the stuff that they supposedly sacrificed. We'll recall the teachings of Jesus in Luke 9, verse 57. A man came up to him and said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. You know what Jesus didn't say? Oh, terrific. Come on, golly shucks. Come on with me. No. He said, Jesus said, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're going to plow a field, you harness yourself into that field and it's tied up to an ox and that ox moves and you control that ox, you're going to affix your eye on a point and you're going to follow that point all the way to the end of the field. And when you look back, you're going to see a what? A straight line. If you're looking back while you're doing it, when you get to the end, it's going to be like this, all over the place. Jesus said, if you're going to set your hands to the plow and follow me, if you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. That's what Lot's wife did. She left Sodom, but she loved Sodom. And she looked back and God turned it into a pillar of salt. There are many people who appear to start out strong, brothers and sisters. 
They depart and they prove that they never were. You can't lose something you never had, amen? If you never had a wallet, you can't lose one. If you never had salvation, you can't lose it. It's everlasting life granted by the grace of God through faith. And even faith is not something you bring. It's a what? It's a gift so that no one can what? Boast. Now, if the story ended here, it would be super easy for us to absorb the fact that these were false disciples, that Jesus was confronting them, and in typical fashion they departed, right? We could all sit here and stamp our little staffs, couldn't we? But look what happens. The questions of Christ become even more disturbing. In verse 67, Then, then, Jesus said to the what? To the twelve. This is group number three. First, the Jews were out of there. The teachers, leaders, out of there. The mass groups of supposed disciples, out of there. Now he turns to the twelve. Do you also want to go away? Oh, come on somebody. Now, the designated term here, the twelve, this is the first time it's used in John's Gospel. Now, many commentators that I read this week, they perceive that Jesus says this with sadness in his heart. Are you going to go away also? But when you look at verse 37, and you look at verse 44, and you look at verse 65, and everything that Jesus has said up to this point, there's no way that that's what that means. This comes in the form of a strong challenge. In other words, are you certain that you don't want to go away as well? In other words, is my teaching too narrow for you also? Is it too straight for you? Is it too inclusive for you? Or exclusive? Is my gospel too difficult for you to proclaim? to represent one theologian says that this is one of the great unanswered questions for the church in our generation do you want to go away also out of all the people that profess Jesus Christ today 84% of Americans something like that so I agree the question that Jesus raises to the twelve is the same question that is opposed that is posed to us today He turns to him and he directly puts him on the spot. Imagine everyone shuffling out. He doesn't skirt the issue. He gets right to the point. He begins to apply pressure. And this question raised to the twelve would actually have been very affirming to them. Think about this. This would have been very affirming. Okay? D.A. Carson writes, and I quote, The question is asked more for their sake than his. They need to articulate a response more than he needs to hear it. One might guess from the flow of the narrative that the defection has been so substantial on this occasion that not many more than the twelve actually remain. End quote. Now imagine these hundreds of people. Jesus does this teaching. It's in the synagogue in Capernaum. They've been following him around. They followed him across the Sea of Galilee. He breaks at this hardcore, coarse teaching. They depart. And then all that's left is the twelve and he turns to them and he says, you want to go too? 
Now, although true disciples are but a small group, God always and always has and always will have His faithful remnant. Always. Now, waiting to hear what one of the twelve will answer, my favorite disciple, Peter. Because he's a guy who stumbled and bumbled and tripped, but he was bold and he was authoritative. He loved Jesus. He made many mistakes. And he's my favorite. Verse 68, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the same one who chimed up in Caesarea Philippi back in Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter could not take credit for recognizing Jesus as the Son of God. No credit. Look what Jesus goes on to say. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why was he blessed? Not he didn't say because you're so brilliant, because you're so much more sharp than the next guy. No. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Only the Father reveals the Son. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So the very words that were the cause of the majority going away, now get this, the very words that were the cause of those going away are this very same words in which Peter knows give life, peace, understanding, and eternal life. There again, it goes back to the words of Christ. Not the works, the words. This is difficult. Is it difficult for you to understand this, to grasp this? These heavy-duty, authoritative claims of Christ, you know, the no one can come and all that stuff, is it difficult? Well, it may be not for you, it's difficult for me. But it's true. Therefore, we proclaim truth. And no man in his right mind will preach a narrow, one-way or the highway message unless he himself has been granted the grace to believe it. Amen? You have to be graced the ability to believe this before you can proclaim it. Verse 69. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They came because they were drawn. Because they believed they were assured to know. This is how he knows, because they were drawn. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Son sent by the Father. Same message, three groups. Two depart. The last one, the small remnant, no. See, this gospel does not sell, brothers and sisters. This gospel, you, you can't sell this. You can't package this up and sell it. This is not your best life now or your purpose-driven material here, right? This is not it. No way. If you want to... If you want to be accepted within the successful circles of life, the famous circles of life, if you want to be accepted among the beautiful people, you don't proclaim this gospel. No. You don't. Because you'll be run out. You'll be run out. Blessed are you when they persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, Jesus said. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward where? In heaven. Persecution is not against you, it's against his words. And he's the word. So the cause of false discipleship, 
is that they will accept the person of Christ, they will agree with the person of Christ, who he is, what he did, but they will reject what he says. So they're quick to accept his work, but they will ultimately reject his words. True disciples, on the other hand, have been graced to accept the person of Christ, agree with who he is, what he's done, and they embrace his words by what? By grace. It's life. He is the words of eternal life. There's two things that make up true disciples. One is faith, Lord, I believe. And the second key to true, a true disciple is faithfulness. Faith is belief. And then faithfulness, Lord, whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? He said, you have the words of eternal life. Faith is the birth of true discipleship, whereas faithfulness is the character of the true disciple. Character of the true disciple. We pursue Christ constantly through all of our life, through ups and downs, victories, defeats, trials, struggles, and even this. Unbelief. The man with the demon-possessed son came to Jesus and said, Lord, we believe, I believe, but help my what? My unbelief. And if you don't believe, you have a hard time grasping things. Because you're the Lord's, He's going to grace you to understand it eventually, and it's probably going to come through a trial. Amen? Come on, somebody who's been through a trial. All believers go through trials. As we conclude, John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed... Okay, now again, here's a mass mob who quote-unquote believed. He said, if, okay, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Abide means to stay. It means to remain. It means to dwell in a house with. It means to continue on with. Proving that you really are Christ. And then he says in John chapter 8, verse 31, And the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? In this case, they would be liberated from legalism, from superstition, from overwhelming guilt, from overwhelming despair, and the frustration that a Christless life creates. Life is frustrating without Christ. There's no hope. So Jesus makes perfectly clear the conditions of true discipleship. Does he not? Very clear. There's a dividing line here. Now, there are many people who are okay with Jesus. This is Christmas time, amen? Everyone's okay with Jesus for the most part. This is cool. Break Jesus out. Get him out of the attic. Light him up. Put him in the front yard, in the manger. Keep him there, and we're good with Jesus. Okay? We love Jesus in the manger. Baby little Jesus, he's good. Why? Because once he grew up, he was always God, always will be God. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He began to proclaim who he was at the age of 30 years old when his public ministry began. The end result? Murder. Hatred. Keep him in a manger. But don't let his words enter the gates of our house. Because we won't have it. Now, as we conclude, for real... Just in case we're hoodwinked or anyone is hoodwinked into thinking that Judas was a true disciple for a while, because remember, he went from the Jews to the mass disciples to the twelve. The twelve weren't the twelve, the twelve were eleven. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? Now, we studied this last week or the week before, I don't remember. Judas was chosen, but he was not chosen for salvation. 
Judas was chosen for the earthly ministry of Christ. He's known as the son of perdition. Scripture declared that, this, that, that he would set his foot, he would set up in opposition against the Christ in Psalm 41 verse 9. You can also read Zechariah 11 verse 12 and 13. It was foretold. It was prophesied. Is that tough to handle? That's tough to handle. But it's true. I can't wrap my mind around that any easier than you can. And if you can wrap it around your mind any easier than I can, then you can help me out with it. But the reality is he was not chosen for salvation. Or he'd have been saved. The man whose deceptive evil heart was invisible to the other disciples was made known and was known in Christ because he's God from the beginning. Most assuredly I say to you, one is the one to use the devil. Judas was a fraud. He was a professing believer. He was a false disciple. And he was apparently, he, he was viewed as such a straight arrow that he was the treasure of the ministerial box of money. Did you know that? Remember he used to pilfer from it? He didn't fool Jesus. He was as phony as a $3 bill. And then he would betray Jesus with a kiss. Can you imagine standing beside the Son of God for three and a half years is one of the twelve and you don't repent, you don't come to Christ. The human responsibility side is that he was to have repent. He was to repent and believe just like everyone else. Just can't mesh human responsibility and the sovereignty of God together because then you will really go mad. Did he have a responsibility to believe? Yes, he did. So what makes for a successful ministry here on earth? We're going to find out in a minute. Verse 71, Jesus spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus, Judas is the ultimate depiction of a false disciple and a horrifying example of what sin does and how deceiving sin is. Amen? Very deceiving. Successful ministry on earth, it's not how many. You know what it is? It's not how many disciples, so-called disciples you have. It's what kind of disciples we are. The kind. Not the number. So as we see from the study, it's not what or who supposed disciples claim to believe. It's a matter of what they do with what or who they claim to believe. You either feed on the bread that's come down from heaven and your very life becomes one with Him or you don't. Two camps. Ones that are fed or ones that are dead. Starved. This, this is the Word of God right here. Amen? We all know this. You don't open this up and go fishing for it and pull out what you want and throw back what you don't. John chapter 6 is a very, very difficult passage for human flesh to receive because it absolutely offends human pride. Amen? It's offensive. And it always will be offensive. The cross is offensive. The gospel is offensive. Amen? Praise God for your salvation. And may we pursue true discipleship, feeding on the words of life, feeding on Christ, 
being an example of his power, of his grace, and of his goodness because the only faithful that were there at this time were the 11. The 12 were there, one of them was a fraud. Because of these 11 men, we sit here today tearing apart what they wrote by the power of the Spirit for the sake of understanding. Amen? And then we take this out. We live it. We breathe it. We feed on it. And we feed others with it, right? We're beggars who've been graced to receive bread. We haven't found the bread. The bread found us. And we go out with that bread by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by might, not by strength, but by thy spirit, saith the Lord. Amen? Amen. If you would please stand, and we'll close in prayer. If God has convicted you today as an unbeliever, if you for the first time in your life have come to an understanding that you're a false disciple of Christ, you're a simple professor of Christ with your mouth, today I bid thee come unto Christ and have life. Come to the well of living water. Come to the bread of life. Repent of your sin. Call on Christ for His mercy. Believe and trust and the scripture says, ye shall be saved. Saved from separation, sin and death. Father, we thank you for your gracious, glorious, powerful words. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news. And God, thank you for saving us and delivering us from the bad. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open the eyes and convict the hearts of those who don't know you today and I pray that they would come to you today in true saving faith by your grace to embrace you, to feed on you, and to live forever. May we, Lord, be bold proclaimers of the truth, being ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect, but always proclaiming the true gospel, having discernment, Lord, in, in knowing how to minister to those who are in our lives who don't know you. We pray on behalf of our family members who don't know you. And may we, Lord, always have you and your truth in the forefront of our minds as we walk by faith through this life, as difficult as it sometimes is. By your grace and for your glory, we pray together. In Jesus' mighty name, Lord, please bless these people in abundance in spirit and truth. Amen.